May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. There's a verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 70, which along with Psalm 71 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, June the 9th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate that very much. We are continuing our look today in uh, the book of Ecclesiasticus, which, as as I've said before, is a a deuterocanonical book. It's outside of the canon of Scripture, but it's included in in what we know as the Apocrypha, which are a set of books that that, uh, the church, uh, beginning actually prior to the church in Judaism, had decided that were worthy of um, reading and instruction for the people of God. Uh, even though they're not Scripture, they're not treated the same way at all. So we're in Ecclesiasticus chapter 11, verses 1 to 8. It, you'll hear it. It's very similar to Proverbs, if you haven't been listening already. Uh, then we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. And in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, uh, chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. So today, the the instructions, again, we, we've seen different kinds of instruction in these proverbs from Ecclesiasticus that um, that that we're going to continue looking at today. So the wisdom of a humble man will lift up his head and will seat him among the great. So in other words, don't um, seek your own greatness. Um, rather, be a humble person who, who then um, is shown to be wise. It's like that whole thing about, you know, that, that uh, um, the People who better be thought wise than to, or a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. So this is the same thing. The wisdom of a humble man will lift up his head and will seat him among the great. He's not choosing that seat. It's his wisdom that gives him that place. And, and that would have been in direct conflict <laughs> with almost every Greek teaching of the day. In Greece, it was thought to, to make much of yourself um, showed that you were truly a man. And here the opposite of that is true. Do not praise a man for his good looks, nor loathe a man for because of his appearance. He can't do anything about either of those things. At the time, he certainly couldn't. Now you could do plastic surgery and whatever. But the bee is small among flying creatures, but her product is the best of sweet things. So, so don't, don't overlook small things. Uh, do not boast about wearing fine clothes, nor exalt yourself in the day that you're honored. For the works of the Lord are wonderful, and His works are concealed from men. And and it goes back that that is sort of pointing towards things that like when Jesus tells the parable of the fool who had a great crop, so he built more barns. But then, well, his life was taken away from him the next day. So d- don't delight in these things. Don't don't take your pleasure in those things because you don't know what's going to happen next. Many kings have had to sit on the ground, but one who was never thought of has worn a crown. Many rulers have been greatly disgraced, and illustrious men have been handed over to others. We see that in our own day. We see this constantly, it seems, with either pastors who have fallen or certainly with politicians and celebrities who fall as well. So do not find fault before you investigate. Uh, If I could give one piece of advice to the vast, um, most of the people in the world— it's don't believe everything you're told. Do not believe everything you're told because that narrative is apt to change, especially when events are, are happening. Then, then you have to be careful. Stand back and don't jump to conclusions. You know, we, the, one of the great examples was this rush of people to go out there and, and talk about how wonderful Jussie Smollett was. Come on. Hold up. 
pay attention. Ask, does what I'm saying, does what I'm believing, does that actually make any sense? Is it possible that could be true? But people jump to these conclusions, and the biggest problem then becomes, well, you know, the the, the lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets his pants on. That's an old Mark Twain thing. We need to be slower <laughs> to form conclusions and opinions about things that are that we're told in the news. We need to take our time and not jump to these conclusions. And, and, and that's all we've seen over the last several years is people jump into conclusions based on what this one says or that one says. And, and so what is the truth? And so don't find fault before you investigate. First, consider and then reprove. Do not answer before you've heard, nor interrupt a speaker in the midst of his words, because you don't know how that, that's going to finish. So it, it's important that, that we not form snap judgments about things, whether that's somebody's personal appearance or, or, or what it looks like today for that person, but, but to know, take our times, form, form an informed judgment, because if you don't, if you do that, then, you, then you're less likely to have to walk back the things that you said or the things that you well, said, typically, because if you think them and don't say it, then you don't have to worry about it. But, but you do. You look like a fool when you jump out in front of something, and now you've got to backfill and find some ways of saying, well, I, I didn't really mean that, you know, but this, but that. No, no, no. Take your time. Just don't believe everything you're told at face value on the front end and form judgments and opinions based on what you're told when something's just happening. In the gospel, Jesus is coming to Caesarea Philippi, which is, again, outside of Jewish territory. It's a place where many gods were worshipped. It's, it's an evil place from the perspective of Israel. But they're in a place in Caesarea Philippi where, where along a cliff face at a, near a cave are these niches where different gods were worshipped, similar to what Paul has to deal with when he goes in to the Acropolis. And he says, look, I've seen that you worship many gods. Let me tell you about this one over here called the unknown God. You know, your minds are so open that, that you've not even closed it on, the, you know, with the pantheon, much less, you know, anything else. And so you're always open to hearing about another God. Well, let me tell you about that God. That one's a real God. And so that's what Paul's doing. And here, that's where they're standing, and Jesus is standing in front of this, this wall of honor, wall of gods, whatever you talk about, Greek and Roman gods. He says, when he comes to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And they're talking about the spirit of those people, because they believed that spirits were kind of recyclable. And so that spirit could come into a person, the spirit of John the Baptist, the spirit of Elijah, spirit of Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And it seems like that's what people are trying to figure out who you are and place you. But you don't really fit any of these categories, but, but these are the closest categories we have. So they're not seeing the uniqueness of Jesus, they're trying to fit him within categories they already have, which is exactly, I believe, what's going on at the Transfiguration. Because what you get there is you get the, the, the two representatives of all the law and all the prophets in Moses and Elijah there with Jesus. And, and the point of the Transfiguration, the point of the voice that comes and then they disappear, which says, this is my beloved son, listen to him is to say, you're, you're still thinking in categories that, that don't fit. He is unique in the world, and that's the reason that when we say the only begotten Son of God, 
in the in the creed of one being with the Father, and that of one being, the word there is homoousius, and what it means is of, of exactly the same substance as the Father. So whatever the Father is, so is the Son. So we recognize the uniqueness of Jesus, that he's not any of those things who have come before him. He transcends all those things, largely because he was before him. What's interesting to me in this sort of list of people they give, they don't mention David. They don't mention Solomon. They're, they're, they're saying that he has something to do with the law or something to do with the prophets, and, and we're just not sure. We, we believe he's a prophet, and he's done some of the things the prophets would do. Right? I mean, he's raised people from the dead. He's done other things that prophets did. And so we don't know is their answer. We're trying to think in terms of categories. And here we've got him in category of prophet, because John the Baptist would have been considered a prophet. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. So in contrast to these gods on the wall behind him, the living God, but you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, but flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus is recognizing and reinforcing that Peter got it right. But he's saying you couldn't possibly have come to that conclusion just on your own. Flesh and blood hadn't revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. So he, he's basically taking the temperature and saying, so where are we? Where are we on this journey of faith and belief? Um, you know, okay, so we know where other people are. They believe John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets like Jeremiah. Who are, you, who, who are you guys who are with me all the time? Who do you think? And Peter gets it right. Now, he's going to mess that up in a minute, but, but at the moment, he gets it exactly right, nails it in one. And Jesus says, yep. And the only way you could possibly know that and, and take that step of faith beyond other people is because the Father has revealed it to you through the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Now, is this rock Peter himself, who is considered to be the first pope? And um, Roman Catholicism says, therefore, that, that Peter is himself the rock on which the church has been built. Well, let's think about the life of Peter. <laughs> So what happens after this? Well, shortly after this, Jesus looks at him at that, this rock on which he'll build his church and says, get behind me, Satan. And then later he says, hey, you're going to deny me three times, and he does. So we, Peter's, the, if he's a rock, he's about as human a rock as you're ever going to find. So, so it's not Peter himself. It can't possibly be him because he's not a rock, not like the way we think. But he is compared to the vast um, stretch of humanity, but, but, but not until he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And once he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he becomes bolder. But does he become perfect? Does he become an immovable rock? No, he doesn't. And we know that because Paul has to confront him to his face about being a hypocrite, acting one way around Jews and another way around Gentiles. So we know that Peter is not really that rock. <laughs> Jesus is the rock. He's the foundation, period, end of sentence. Peter is one of those because he is a faithful man, but it's in, in, a, in a comparative sense in the same way that they, that'll say Noah was a righteous man in his generation. Okay, well... What do we know about his generation, that the only um, intention of man's heart was only evil all the time? 
Okay, well, it's a pretty low bar to be righteous in your generation. So here, though, Peter is the rock on which he'll build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can say, you know, it's his confession of Christ that's there, but that's not what Jesus says. You know, it's not what he says. He, he does actually say that Peter is a rock on which he'll build his church. But does that mean, then, that Peter is the only rock? Does it mean that he's the only one on whom God will build his church? And the answer clearly is no. And we know that because John led churches. Paul led churches. And did he build it on Peter's testimony? No, because he had to rebuke Peter to his face. So we know that that can't possibly mean that the Roman Catholic Church has the corner on salvation and truth, because otherwise you have to do away with all the Johannine churches and most of the Johannine teaching. So it, it can't possibly mean that. And he says, I shall... I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, now we do see that in, in a way with Peter, because what we see in um, Acts 10 is Peter gets the vision of go and kill and eat with all the unclean creatures in it. And, and what it's saying is, is, is that you're going to, this, this mission is broader than just the Jews. But in order to reach those broader groups, you're going to have to interact with them. And so that interaction is going to produce then, well, you can't go to somebody's house for dinner if they're having, you know, um, shrimp. And so, no, what God is, is loosing it, but he gave the vision to Peter. So it wasn't Peter's initiative that said, oh, I'm going to now just kind of live like a Gentile. No, it was God's initiative to do that by showing them that in the vision and then confirming that vision with men coming to meet him right away. So it's, yes, it's those kinds of things, but those are dietary laws, and dietary laws are not the same as ritual laws. They're not the same as purity laws. They're not the same as ethical laws. Those are two totally different things. <clears throat> he said, then he, then he, Jesus, strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We're assuming that, he, that they didn't, <laughs> at least for the rest of his life, because we also know that he, they didn't even tell the other disciples about what happens at the Mountain of Transfiguration. So, so we see these, these uh, distinctions, and Jesus is saying, don't say it yet, because th that awaits the giving of the Holy Spirit. For them to proclaim him as the Christ, th then the crowds are going to get the completely wrong idea about what that means. He's got to go to the cross to show them what the Christ actually means. Because here, even, I'm positive, based on what we know, that, that Peter didn't confess him as the Christ he actually was. He's the Christ that I believe in, the Christ that I believe who will come and restore the kingdom, who will do all these things and become like a Davidic king. And Jesus is not there to do that at that time. He will eventually rule over all things, but as yet we don't see that in place. And so he didn't want them telling other people that he was the Christ because it would, it would uh, involve creating a false expectation among the people. In the Galatians passage, Paul says, look, I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so what he's, he's, there's a contrast there in, walk, in walking by the law and walking by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, you have the interpretation of the law. It becomes part of who you are, as opposed to something that's external to you. He says, don't worry about it. It's, it would be sort of like seeing a man preparing and learning to be a tightrope walker and having um, 
you know, wires attached to him so that if he fell, these things caught him uh, or other things that would keep you from doing that. And then finally, one day, looking at that person and saying, you're ready, just walk. And that's exactly what, Peter, what, what Paul's speaking about here. Walk by the Spirit. In other words, trust the Spirit within you. And if you do, then you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So be that tightrope walker, but, but trust the Spirit in order to do that. But Because but, he's already said to the Galatians that the law was a pedagogue bringing you to sonship. So you needed it for a time, but you don't need it now, is what he's saying. You, you, the Spirit will lead you into keeping of the law. And what that means is is not gratifying the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's the same argument that he makes in Romans 7. You know, that if you're living by the Spirit, then, then it controls your desires. It, it overcomes the weakness of the flesh. The power of the Spirit's greater. And that's what he's trying to say. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Because it's not, the law doesn't save you. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. I mean, do you hear what—contrast this with what he said earlier about binding and loosing. Those things that are bound on earth and loosed in, are, are bound in heaven, and things that are loosed on earth are loosed in heaven. See if they've relaxed. See what's been relaxed here. If that power was given to the apostles, then see what's not being relaxed. It's clearly not everything. It was dietary laws. Dietary laws aren't everything. because And the Spirit led them to that understanding. But here, what is it Paul says are works of the flesh? These are things that have been bound on earth and will be bound in heaven. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I mean, these are gross immorality is what Paul's talking about. I mean, these are, you shouldn't have to be told not to do these things. <laughs> he says these things are evident. It's it's evident and obvious that these things are not of God, that they're of the flesh. He says, now, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they're bound in heaven. They're, they're, they're bound in heaven. And if they're bound in heaven, then they're wrong here on earth, too. Don't do these things. He says, then he goes on to say, well, here's the good news. I mean, okay, so if you read that list... Then you're looking and go, well, I'm kind of repelled by those things, but but we have to also realize that my flesh can find some of those things right pleasurable and desirable, even if I know they're wrong. <laughs> but he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Which of those lists... <laughs> in a realistic way of looking at things, appeals to you more. Do you want to have fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies? Or would you rather have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control? I mean, those sound better. (laughs) It shouldn't take long to say what character traits would I want people to, to, to bring out at my funeral. What kind of guy was he? Well, he was sexual immorality, describes him pretty well. And, um, you know, enmity, strife, jealousies, fits of anger. Yeah, that that all describes John. Would anybody want that? Or would you actually want somebody to go, you know, he was a really peaceful guy. He was a very loving guy. He was a joyous guy. He was was a very kind guy. I mean, which would you rather? I mean, literally, come on. 
<laughs> That's what Paul says. These things are evident. He said, but all, he says, against those things, there is no law. Nobody would ever enact a law against love or joy or peace. <laughs> I mean, he said, look, these things are simple. But if you want to participate in those, then you've got to live by the Spirit, and you've got to let the Spirit control you. You've got to give up trying to control your life and allow the Spirit to control your life, and it'll lead you into all these things, and that'll be the product of who you are, and these will be the things that describe you. These will be the character traits that are evident in your life. And he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, because what we've seen is, is, is that we have to. We have to do these things because we've been born again. We're new creations. And therefore, we should see that those things and the desire for those things is just wrong. And, and we ought to pursue life in the Spirit. And seeing that it's wrong means repenting, means turning around, going in an opposite direction, and having nothing to do with those former things. It should be simple. We should, we should take our time. We should not act rash, rashly, and we need to control ourselves. We need to have self-control. We need to not let our desires run ahead of us. And we need to be controlled by the Spirit and not by desire. We need to have better impulse control.